Hey, I'm Pastor Dave Ferguson. Welcome to Crosswalk Chattanooga's Weekend Teaching Podcast. We're glad you're with us. Good morning. How are you doing, Crosswalk friends, family, guests? We're so glad that you are here together as we continue our series, Unbroken. This is a challenging, I'm just going to say it, a very challenging, challenging series. By the way, I've been discovering more and more that we have a number of mental health professionals that come, are a part of our family, and do the new guy a favor, if that's true for you, and on your way out, if you don't already have my number, on your way out, grab my card on the table underneath the next steps uh, sign and text me and let me know your, what you do with regard to uh, mental health, if you're a mental health professional, as we kind of continue to build kind of our catalog of opportunities for how we serve one another, I'd be curious to know what your role is. Today, uh, we, we head into Mark chapter 5. It's going to be kind of our home base for our teaching today. And I'm going to do a little kind of, we'll give you the, well, it's the starter. It's the starter for this, and then we'll break away and come back to it. But in the second verse, it says this, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit, came out from the tombs to meet him. When Jesus got out of the boat, a demon-possessed guy ran to meet him. So uh, if you had asked me earlier this week, uh, Pastor Dave, what are you going to be talking about uh, this particular weekend? I'd have been nervous to tell you, just if I'm honest about it. Uh, It's not a comfortable conversation. It's not a comfortable subject. Uh, This idea of demons and de- the, the Bible seems really comfortable with it. I mean, in the New Testament especially, there are all sorts of conversations around demons and demon possession. But this is an uncomfortable subject for me, and maybe made especially uncomfortable landing in the middle of a series on some of the challenges we have in our thinking. You know, interestingly, uh, as data would show, in America these days, more than half of all Christians don't actually believe that there is such a thing as the devil. In fact, believe that any reference in scripture to the devil or demons or demon possession is metaphorical. On the other hand, there are people in this world who seem really caught up with the idea of demons and and to be at the other end of the spectrum. I find people on on two ends of the spectrum. Either, Either it's kind of like a uh, almost a cartoon of something that, you know, it's not really all that real even at all, or it's so real that we're petrified with fear, or we're really super fascinated and almost make it our area of study. And I've got to say to you, I'm a little uncomfortable at either end of that spectrum. Um, there are places in the world where you couldn't possibly take the position that there are none, or you wouldn't for sure in that culture. Here in America, it's kind of easier to do. I, I always... Um, wonder about this, and I think about C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors, who said this, there are two equal and and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe, is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I, um, yeah, I I will admit that I am made very uncomfortable with this conversation. Because I'm supposed to stand up here and speak as if from some level of expertise, and I don't feel like I have much of any expertise on this subject. I, I remember back as a, an intern, it was, I was very young, and I was interning under a pastor. By the time I got to this 
two-church district, very tiny churches, that pastor had taken a, a position somewhere else. So now I had the worst situation possible for interning. I interned generally under myself, and that's not ideal. <clears throat> um, you have a number of things that you think in your own career probably, or what you're, if you're a student, you're thinking your way forward, and you wonder, well, I wonder what I'll do when, or will this happen to me, or whatever. There were a few things on a checklist of, huh, wonder what I would do if kind of things, and it seemed like so many of those started happening to me. About two months into my time there, I got a call from one of the leaders of the larger of the two very small churches who said to me, hey, Pastor Dave, so you may not even know this particular member because I'm not sure they've been coming to church all that much, but they have a 13-year-old daughter and she, this member, has decided that their 13-year-old little girl is is possessed, Uh, which, you know... I did hear a comedian once describe that they thought when the, the devil rebelled against God, he was probably 14. But I was, I was uncomfortable in this situation. I wasn't sure what to do. But he wasn't asking me to do anything. He was alerting me and forewarning me that that mother had learned of a group of people that had a ministry of deliverance from demons that she had contacted and called, and they had come, and they had done a thing, and then it was all described to me. And I found myself I, both not wanting to be judgmental. I mean, what pastor's going to stand up to you? And, well, I guess there could be some. But and say, you know, demons are not real at all. That's not, that's not the position I would take. But on the other hand, what this group was doing was they would come and they would pray around. And it would be long, lengthy prayers as they attempt to name the demon that this particular person has and cast it out. Because you can't cast it out without knowing its name was the idea. And so you might have the demon of gambling. Or you might have the demon of some form of addiction. Or you might have the demon of being overweight. Or you might have the demon of any number of things. And as I was playing this out in my head, actually the thing that was going on in my head was I was, I was thinking, you know, we're getting dangerously close here to uh, kind of the devil made me do it approach, right? If anything goes wrong, it's a demon, it's not me. And it made me wonder this question. Well, if, in, in that kind of scenario, uh, who would be the devil's devil? You know what I mean? So apparently, the devil did not need a devil to fall, to rebel. And I'll just be honest with you, I'm not so sure I need one. I think in this broken world, my own brokenness and my own sinful nature and sometimes my habits and so I don't know that I need a demon showing up to tempt me. That is not to say that I don't think that that happens. In fact, I think it's important that we really acknowledge the Bible is not scared to say that there is a whole big deal something going on here that is a war that's happening. Last week we talked about it from Ephesians chapter 6. And verse 13, that our battle's not with flesh and blood, it is with the principalities of darkness. That there's something bigger going on. In fact, the book of Revelation describes it this way in the 12th chapter. It says, and there was war in heaven. Perfect. At peace, and war breaks out. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. And who's this dragon? What's this about? A couple of verses later, the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent tip of the cap to Genesis, called the devil or Satan, and that word Satan, Satan, actually translates in the Hebrew, its original version, an accuser, the one who accuses. 
So amidst all of this, leading the whole world astray, part of what's being said here is, hey, look, there is a big battle that is going on, and there's two, there are two sides, and, and there's you, and it's a battle over your decision-making, what you're going to do and what's going on here. And if we minimize that, we miss out on some pretty important observations. Interestingly, I love John 10.10. 10. If you ask me in favorite verses, there'd be about 50 of them that would come tumbling out, but John 10.10 10 would be in there. John 10.10, 10, Jesus came so that we might have life and have it to the fullest, but we're lopping off the front half of John 10.10. 10. You read it in its fullness and it says this, there is a thief that comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So there, there are these two sides, these two arguments that are going on. In fact, I think if we don't acknowledge this, we miss something, that the Bible is a story about an argument between two sides, and then there's me. And if I only lock in on one of the two sides, I can end up in a problem. Uh, one of our favorite ways is to lock in on just Jesus and me. And when we do that, if I'm honest about it, I turn the Bible very closely into a book that's all about me. Because this whole thing is about Jesus saving me. No, 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 no. This whole book is about an argument about whether God can be trusted at all and I get to play a role in answering that question. If, on the other hand, I just lock in on the demonic powers, I can diminish the power of Jesus to save. It's these two arguments and me and you. Now, I just have to say, um, that this is a daunting topic, and especially so in the midst of this series. I think it's a fair question. Well, okay, so you're bringing up demon possession in a series about mental health and mental health crisis and different things that we... So are you saying these are the same things? That if you, all you had were the, these two data points, we're preaching about mental health, and today we're talking about demons, and you just do the math independently there, you might come away going, I think he's trying to suggest that mental health issues are demon possession. Yeah. No. Could be. Don't think it's the same in every situation. Frankly, I think there's a whole huge continuum. Like I said, I don't think the devil needed a devil for him to fall. I don't think I do most days. On the other hand, I think that there is an argument going on and there is a stirring that happens that is bigger than just us human beings. And so it's complex and challenging, difficult to understand. I believe on, on that, that I, I'm, I'm a broken person. I live in a, on a broken planet. And in fact, things happen to me that are not about my decision making at all. I think at times they are about my decision-making, my own habits, my own struggles, the things that are going on in my own head without any provocation from some demon. I think that it's possible to deny and flirt with the demonic, but we kind of tend to have an on-off switch. That word demon is just so strong. What the Bible suggests is that everything that's going on in our world is a part of this argument, this clash about whether God can be trusted in your life if he actually is coming to save you. 
and a counter argument that says, give up on him, let go of him. By the way, you don't deserve him if he were there. You're lost. It's over. There's no hope. Get what you can now. It's a clash. So I would make no pretense to understand if you're struggling with depression, what role the darkness of the spiritual battle has to do with it. I would say that there is spiritual darkness that is ever threatening. And wherever you are on that continuum, you don't have to be all the way to demon possession for me to tell you the exact same solution is available to you anywhere on the continuum. It turns out whether this situation is about demon possession or if it's about um, a genetic uh, chemical makeup or it's about something that was done to you through no fault of your own, turns out I would say the same thing. One of the things I would say, I would, I would, I would highlight a, a quote here from our series guide, put in the series guide by Pastor Patty, Pastor Patty McCoy, our lead pastor in Portland, who's been doing a lot of the writing for the series guide. Maybe you've been following it. He said this, and it, it, we've said it before. Our mental health issues must be confronted on every possible level. Mentally, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. All of it. Why would we hold back anything God gave us to fight? To experience rescue, healing, and restoration. But in the midst of it, we throw that word spiritually in there. There is a spiritual battle that we are in, period. And so, we go to Mark chapter 5. Sorry for that long prelude. <laughs> but again, I think I confess to you, I'm uncomfortable about this whole topic. Here we go. Mark chapter 5, as we lead into it, Mark chapter 4, the very last thing that happens is Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples and they're going across from, from Judea. They're going across this lake and they're headed toward um, the Roman-occupied territory. It's not, it doesn't, they don't share the same values as where they're coming from, where they're headed. And during their trip across, a storm erupts and the disciples are freaked out and they think they're going to die. And Jesus stands up and says, peace be still, you remember that. And the storm calms. And then this last verse of Mark chapter 4, the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they ask each other. Interesting, they were scared when the storm was going. But when Jesus stands up and says, peace be still, they're absolutely terrified. Sometimes we talk about it like when Jesus shows up, everything's just gooey and awesome. Hey, he says to us, he does not come to bring peace. He comes to bring a sword. He comes to mess you up. He doesn't come into my life to leave me the same as I was. He comes with healing, but he comes with a challenge and a charge. And it's not always just easy, as we see in this story. And so they're kind of confused and wondering, what in the world? Who is this man? So Mark, as he goes through his book, is trying to outline who he's discovered this man is. So, verse 1 of chapter 5. So, Jesus and the disciples, they arrive at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. Some of your versions will say the Gadarenes, others will say the Gergesenes. And some of you are going, what? Well, this is... Decapolis. So around 63 BC, 
Pompey, a Roman leader, decided because their, ma- their major challenge for attack, Rome, was from the southeast, and they decided to build 10 cities and uh, protect a region as a buffer zone. Kind of didn't really care that much if those 10 cities got throttled, but this is now a kind of demilitarized zone, except the way they demilitarize it is they put these cities there, and then they plant a legion in that territory to protect it so that the territories further north and west can't be invaded. And it's called the Decapolis. We're going to see it referenced as the Ten Towns. That's because Deca, Ten, Opolis, cities, right? Ten cities. Uh, By the way, it's a little bit like the Big Ten in football, college football. Anybody know how many teams are in the Big Ten? You are wrong if you think it's 10. There used to be 10. Now now 14, next year it's going to be 18, I understand. So uh, it just kind of keeps growing. That's the Big Ten, 18 teams in the Big Ten. Later on, the Decapolis would have 16 cities, but they kept calling it the the Decapolis. It's this area, this region. And Jesus, as he boats across, he, the, the crunch of the sand as the boat arrives on the far shore in Decapolis, this is a region that the disciples would see as problematic. If they step out of the boat onto that sand, they are unclean. This is not a place you go. What is it that's going on here, Jesus? So when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tomb to meet him. And incidentally, through this whole story, a lot of wild goings on, you're not actually going to hear at any point that the disciples leave the boat. In fact, I almost imagine in my mind's eye that as the boat reaches the shore, Jesus is in the front, he climbs out, and you know, just lifting a little bit of weight out of the boat, and it kind of bobs up a little bit, and it's now no longer beached on the sand, and maybe one of the disciples just gives the oar a little push. The boat just kind of drifts back from the shore. Because this is a place that, I mean, it's unclean. If you interacted with a person here, that's especially unclean. And out from a bunch of tombs runs this dude. And by the way, the tombs are unclean even back home. So you got unclean, 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 and this guy. And as this guy rushes up on him, this is told in Matthew and Luke as well. And they will make a particular point out of the fact that he's not wearing clothes. Mark will point out later that suddenly he is wearing clothes. He doesn't make the point that he's naked, but they make that point in the other tellings of it. And so here rushes up. I don't, have you ever had somebody run up on you that's a stranger and you don't know what's happening? It would be especially disturbing if they were not clothed. We're also going to read that, in fact, this dude has been cutting himself, is bleeding and scabbed and bruised, and he's got a wild, crazy eye, and he's shrieking in an unnatural voice, and he's got chains dripping from his arms and legs. And the disciples are like, yep, Jesus, let's see that walk on water thing, because we're not coming in. Jesus climbs out of the boat, and one of the most important takeaways from our story, if you just freeze here and don't hear anything else, hear this. Jesus always climbs out of the boat into your life, no matter how bad you think it is. 
even when his church stays in the boat. Jesus comes to you. If you think you're too messed up, if you think you've done too much of the wrong thing, if you think you are unclean beyond salvation and beyond hope, hear this story because this is, this is Mark saying, I don't know how else to put it, this is the worst, the worst situation. This is a heathen, this is a person who doesn't know the true God, this is someone who has lost his mind, he is demon-possessed, he is naked, which from everybody knows from Scripture means he is filled with shame, and he is beating and cutting himself, and he's wild-haired, shrieking unnaturally. I don't know what's gone on in your life. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what internal conversations play in your head. I just know this. Jesus gets out of the boat, comes down from heaven, crosses the street into where you are. When your mom and dad won't, he will. When the people who claim his name won't, he does. Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus walks into this man's life. The man, he lived in these burial caves, but they tried to restrain him on occasion. That's where the chains come from. They would every once in a while capture him. Enough of them would go up into the hills. They would capture him and they would chain him to the walls because they didn't want the danger to their families. They didn't want the danger to their children. And sometimes we behave this way. Sometimes we can, if we're not careful, God's people even can, if we're not careful, use a tactic that I think is the primary tactic of the dark side of this whole conversation, which is to isolate people from one another. To isolate you, to get you away from the family of God, to get you alone. When you have no one to lift you, when you have no one to counterbalance the voice in your head. Yeah, it's, you could stay at home. Stay at home and watch a sermon. And There's something irreplaceable about being together. And trust me. We can so easily fall under the illusion that it's safe to be alone. Well... They can't restrain him with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as often he was, he would snap the chains from his wrists and smash the shackles, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And you may be thinking, there is no one strong enough to deal with my stuff. There is no one who has what it takes. And by the way, what we're not saying here is, ah, I've got the answer, just pray. No, no. The answer may well be to fight this battle over time with everything God has given you to do it. As a part of a family, through prayer and commitment to Jesus, sometimes professionals that do this with their time and can help in ways others cannot. It could be pastoral counseling is helpful. It's possible that Balancing medications are going to be important. 
Why would we not take advantage of everything God gives us to fight? Well, uh, no one was strong enough, and he's running around day and night through these burial caves, and at night screeching through the hills, howling through the hills, cutting himself. This has to be. I mean, does it not? This has to be. You know, the Boy Scouts or Pathfinder group around the campfire, they would be telling stories about this, don't you think? Oh, and then, oh, out in the woods. Or taking it even more seriously, you know parents are saying, if you ever, if you ever, just if you hear the clinking of chains, run. Do not, and this is an area not safe for you to go. And he's cutting himself. This is a far more prevalent thing these days than it used to be, maybe, I guess. And what we understand if I, again, I know so little. But that it's possible that there's somebody here who is filled with such self-loathing that they can't feel hardly anything except to cut themselves. And yes, Jesus steps into that with you. He knows what it is to bleed. And he wants to set you free. Well, Jesus, still some distance away, the man sees him and runs to him. (laughs) You've got this, if you've got this picture in your head, it's a dude who is so bulked, so ripped and naked and wild-eyed and stuff that he apparently tried to eat in his beard and cuts and bruises and just shrieking, running toward you and Jesus holds his ground. And he bows low before him. With a shriek, he screams out, why are you interfering with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. By the way, in the book of Mark, all the way until the very, very end of the book, the question is, who is this man? And you know what? The answer shows up a multitude of times out of the mouths of demons. The demons always seem to know who Jesus is, even when we don't. They know what they're up against, even when I don't. And by the way, if, if ghouls and goblins and demons and ghosts, and if this is all freaky, uh, kind of scary stuff, know this, in the biblical telling, whenever a demon-possessed person or a demon shows up, fear fills the room. But check out who's afraid. The demons are afraid. When Jesus shows up, he is not afraid. And he says to you, I mean today or over time to cast out your fears. It being real does not mean walk in fear. He's saying, I am more real, always. And they're the ones who need to be afraid. So they seem to know who he is pretty quickly. Hey, don't, 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 don't torture me. 
Weird little comment. Interesting, in the other two passages, in Luke and in Matthew, it's stated a little bit differently. So it's not just about torture. It's about something has to do with, it's not the right time, Jesus. You haven't gone to the cross yet, Jesus. You don't have the right yet, Jesus. And Jesus turns back and he says what he would say throughout Scripture. Do you know what? Since the beginning of time, I was the lamb who was slain. And I will lay claim to my victory on this man's behalf now. There's no waiting to the cross. As someone comes to an altar in the Old Testament with a lamb and it is slain, they are laying claim to, they are getting advanced copy of the grace I bring on their behalf. Jesus is not stingy with his rescue. Well, goes on. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Wait, whoa, whoa, it's not your time. Yeah, yeah, it is, Jesus says. And Jesus demands, first of all, what is your name? What is your name, demon? This is where some people get this idea of that's how you deal with demons. And again, I am completely, I don't know what I'm doing in terms of demons. And I'm pretty freaked out by people who say they do know what to do. But Jesus is asking for the name, and the name that comes back is the name Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Now, Legion, by the way, a tip toward our future understanding here, a Legion is a military term for the Roman soldiers. It used to be, before this time, that a Legion was a thousand soldiers. That's what Legion means, is a thousand. It was a thousand soldiers. But by this point, for instance, there is a Legion. The 10th Legion of Rome is actually camped out and garrisoned in this territory, and there's easily at least 5,000 soldiers are involved in a legion by this point. It's kind of like the Big Ten, again. 18, 14, not just 10. Sure, we'll call them the 1,000, but it's 5,000, some on horseback, some auxiliary soldiers, and maybe more than all of that. And so in the midst of this is this kind of conversation about this battle, and not just the spiritual battle, but Jesus is, Mark is taking this story to a bigger, bigger platform about battle. It goes on. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. This is a weird part of the story I don't fully understand. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the hillside country, and they said, send us into the pigs. Please, 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 send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission to go to the pigs. By the way, I love this thing that in the midst of, we, we can think of this battle as somehow being among equals. It is not among equals. The issue is that Jesus guarantees my freedom to choose against him no matter his power, no matter his might, no matter his creative energy. He gives me an equal say and, in fact, soul say in what will happen to me. But don't miss it. The demons need Jesus' permission to do whatever. And I think that's pretty awesome. I think it is weird that he says, sure, go into the pigs. Some, I don't know what you're making out of that. That Jesus says, yeah, go into the pigs. The pigs go diving into the water. I don't know if you're trying to, you know, some of us might try to do some health thing with that. Or I don't know you know, where, we're, where we're at here. 
They go rushing into the water, and the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. The news about this is going on. And then, as soon as the crowd gathered around Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. (laughs) This is fascinating. A little bit before, he had been battered, bleeding, bruised, insane, crazed. Just vein popping, muscles with chains slinging around everywhere. And he is naked. And now he is clothed and looks absolutely sane. And you gotta, you got to ask yourself, how did he get that way? How did that happen? What happened? And we don't know, but I've got a suspicion. My suspicion is that Jesus washes this man with his own hands. That he removes the shackles that cannot be removed. That he salves the wounds and he takes off his own cloak and clothes this man and covers his shame. Jesus is just that kind of God. And perfectly sane. I mean, you could have just stopped with, there he was. I mean, apparently sane. No, no, no. Perfectly sane. This was such a transformation. Such a difference he is there. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. The pigs are a primary piece of their storytelling. Let's not, make no mistake, all the pigs are gone. Which incidentally, apparently pigs can swim really well. And they're quite buoyant. So... I don't know exactly how it all worked. I'm not sure if they go just racing down into the water and they sink like a rock. Or now there are 2,000 pigs bobbing on the water. I don't know what the situation is. Do you wonder why is it that this has happened this way? The crowd begins to plead with Jesus, go away, go away. And this is a possibility for you and me. Look, leave me alone. I like where I'm at. And the subtlety of it all, I would prefer to stay right where I am than to be free. Go away, Jesus. So, what's the deal with the pigs? Jesus. There are two thoughts that cross my mind. The first one is, have you, have you ever struggled with something, felt some form of victory, and then wondered when it's going to be back. Or not felt certain that you're over this. Every time this thought might cross this now perfectly sane man's mind, he has the vision, the view, the tape rolled in his head of 2,000 pigs racing down a cliff. It could be it's a gift from Jesus of assurance 
of victory. There's another thing, though, that's going on here, potentially. Uh, one of the things that apparently, historically, and, and scholars would tell us is 2,000 pigs for a town the size of any one of these 10 towns is way too many pigs. It's the kind of number of pigs that are actually going to destroy stuff, not be that helpful. Why 2,000 pigs? Ah, unless you are garrisoning an additional 5,000 soldiers. So the pigs, they might well be used as a part of the sacrificial system of these pagan gods. And Jesus, hey, look, I've got charge over all that. But this is a battle metaphor, right? These are, the legion is coming out, and the pigs are actually now destroyed. And this is what the legion, this warring group of people, this is what they're going to survive on. In fact, check this out. This legion, the 10th legion of Rome, is actually a group called Fratensis. They were all, the legions all had names. And uh, when they would be stationed in an area, garrisoned, obviously if there was fighting to do, they would do it, but often there wasn't. And so then they would do kind of civil service, build things. They had all this manpower and nothing to do, and it was actually a lot better for them if they kept busy. And so they would build things, and often with clay bricks and different things, but they would stamp their identity into the clay bricks. So in this area, we know that this this legion was stationed there because their stamp ends up on the clay bricks in this area. It's interesting to take a look at what's on this clay brick. L-E-G, that's Legion X-10, F Fratensis. At the top, that's actually a warship that's at the top of that clay tile. And at the bottom, can you tell what that is? The symbol of this army, this portion of the army, is the swine, a boar, a pig. And Jesus sends a message back with Mark. There is a war going on, and the war could be physical, the war could be mental, the war could be with principalities of this earth or principalities of the darkness. I have charge of it all. Whatever your struggle is, whatever your difficulty is, I am here to set you free. Well, the crowd pleads for him to go away. And as Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begs, pleads, go where Jesus is. By the way, whether you are just struggling with difficulty and frustration, or maybe you are going through depression, or you have a a loop of shame that plays in your head, or it could be all the way to demon possession, anything in that whole spectrum, the answer is still the same. Use everything at your at your deployment to battle and do warfare. But understand that there are principalities of darkness you're in a battle with too. Jesus needs to be a part of your story. He is the central character in our story. But there's something kind of crazy about this. Because if we're saying the thing that you need to do, no matter what the circumstance for you, is be where Jesus is, go to the light, there's a darkness be with him, and in fact, this guy goes, hey, Jesus, I mean, this has all changed for me. In fact, I'm not even sure I know these people, and in fact, there's some really weird glances I'm getting because of all the history of what, you know, been going on. Can I go with you? And Jesus says no. <laughs> it's a surprise twist in this story. Jesus says no, and frankly, there are disciples still a little offshore in the boat going, whew, 
Uh, it was not what I would have predicted he was going to do. He tends to collect these kind of people. No, go to your home, to your family, and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. And so the man started off to visit the ten towns, all the towns of Decapolis, not just his own family. He goes a little nuts on this. He goes around the whole region and begins to proclaim the great things Jesus has done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. You see, in Mark 5, it's the first time Jesus is in this place, the Decapolis, this region at all. But it's not the last time he will be there. It's fascinating to consider because this is a, this is a Roman community of polytheists that are not, they don't have the Hebrew background. This is not going to be something that's great for Jesus' ministry and message. But he asked this man, stay, stay and tell them your story. By the way, what does this guy know? He's asked, hey, can I come with you? Teach me. Help me know. What's going on? This guy doesn't know about the Sabbath. This guy doesn't know about unclean meat. This guy doesn't know. Well, what does he know? He knows I was a mess. And then Jesus showed up. And he washed me clean. And he clothed my shame. And he changed everything. And Jesus says, that's it. That's it. That's all. That's all I need you to do. All I need you to do is tell the people who would listen to you what happened when I showed up. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to understand some number of fundamental stuff. Tell them what I did. And then... Jesus shows up again in Mark chapter 7 in the Decapolis in this same region. He's wandering around and he is approached by some individuals. They come to him with a deaf man. It's a small group of people. But they bring this man to him. Somehow they become, hey, look, we knew this dude shrieking in the hills and he told us how this all changed. And so we've got, we've got, a burden to put in front of you and somebody we care about and we need help with. And Jesus heals this man. And then roll into Mark chapter eight. And by the time we get to Mark chapter eight, Jesus is there again in the Decapolis and a group of people will rush around him to listen to him speak. 4,000 is the number that's listed. That's probably the men. So it might be as many as 8,000 people are gathered there to listen to him preach for three days. I mean, buckle up. Three days. And on the front row is our former insane dude who invited everybody there. You may feel like you don't know enough to make a difference. If you have encountered Jesus Christ, His simple request is this for you. Tell your story. Chattanooga is filled with insanity and problems and difficulty and disconnection and isolation and warfare that Jesus steps up and says, I am the answer and I'm not taking you out of Chattanooga. I want you to stay. Tell them what I do. 
Tell them who I am. You don't have to be this gifted communicator. Just love me back. Show people what that looks like. Thank you for joining us for this teaching. Consider hitting the subscribe button to stay tuned for next week. If you'd like to support Crosswalk Chattanooga, go to crosswalkvillage.com slash Chattanooga and click the Give button at the far right of the ribbon at the top. Notice the campus drop-down menu and select Chattanooga. And if you'd like to come and worship with us on a Saturday morning, we would love that. When you do, please say hi to me. I'd love to learn your name.